I love that. And if you asked me, not in a million years would I do that. Welcome to summer in Minnesota. It's a great thing. We're trying to change the pace up this summer. And uh, since we get to go to the lake or we get to jump in the pool, we would like to do something a little different. We'd like to go to the deep end of the pool. We're going to spend the summer where we don't usually go, the deep end of the pool, and we're going to talk about a part of the Bible we rarely talk about. To do that, I think, we would ask you to come with us. Today, I think that means if you have a bulletin or a piece of paper, this might be a good time to grab a pencil because this, more than most, will be sort of a note-taking sermon, setting the stage for the rest of the summer uh, that is to come. I'm I'm just encouraging you, if you have a pencil, to be ready to scratch something out. I'm going to assume that you're here, at least in part, because you hope that God speaks. Sometimes you believe that God speaks, but a lot of times you just hope that there is a God and that that God will speak to you. You're at all different places in our journey of life and faith, but we all want to hear something. We want to hear a voice from out there that speaks to us here. We're not always sure what that voice will be or what it will say. And when somebody says they speak for God, that God has told them to say this, you both listen carefully and you're a little cautious. Several years ago, I was in the north side in a tough neighborhood with a a Christian lawyer who had been asked to bring creativity to a foundation. This foundation was trying to figure out how to improve the lives of folks up in that neighborhood, and he had been asked to be creative about it. And so we were sitting down for lunch with a a leader in that community. None of us had ever been to this restaurant before. We sat down, and as as we did so, uh, a woman approached our table and said, I've been told that I have the spirit of prophecy, that I have the gift. And I feel like God has given me a word for you and points. And thank goodness she was not pointing at me. She was pointing at Jay Bennett, the lawyer that I was with. And and she said, the Lord has told me you are trying to honor God in this season. You need to hear that there will be hard times And that you must persevere. And she just stood there. Well, Jay was taken aback, but he sat back and he listened and and he said, you know, I think I'm just going to let that rest in my spirit, sister. And the woman seemed satisfied and left. If somebody came up and said that to you, I think God has something to say to you, how would you respond? What do you think of when you hear the word prophet? When you hear about the idea of a person who is a prophet, what image does that bring? Is it it something like this? Here's to the crazy ones. The misfits. The rebels. The troublemakers. The round pegs in the square holes. The ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, 
disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them. Because they change things. They push the human race forward. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. When our society thinks of the prophetic voice, a Gandhi or a Martin Luther King or a Jim Jones who is a crazy prophet, is that what you think of? When the Bible talks about a prophet, it has a different image in mind. None of the prophets, as far as I can tell, are that smart. None of them are that gifted like the folks we just saw on the screen. But instead, what made them prophets was they insisted that they heard a voice from God. They heard a voice from God that you needed to hear. Now think about the things that we usually hear about in sermons and the emotions that they bring out. We, we talk about joy and sadness and comfort and anger and eternity and serenity. Now think about the prophets. What kind of emotions do they stir up in us? What characterizes them? Don't the prophets strike you as kind of cranky? They're, they're, they're not the life of the party, the prophets. Not, not only do they often say something that wrecks the mood, but prophets seem to resort in the Bible to use shock tactics that look just bizarre. You would not want one of them to be your friend, to live in your house. You would not, for instance, want Ezekiel to come and live with you because Ezekiel ate food that was cooked over poop. Really, he, he ate food cooked over poop to show people how defiled they had become. You probably wouldn't want Isaiah living in the guest house. Isaiah walked around naked and barefoot for three years to show what was going to happen to unfaithful people. Try to keep that image out of your mind. <laughs> you probably wouldn't be comfortable having Hosea in the guest house because Hosea was told by God to marry a prostitute. To show how God's people were unfaithful. And even the prostitute couldn't, under, couldn't stand him and kept trying to run away. The prophets are filled with this kind of stuff. Prophets seem to be called by God to bring God's word to broken people living in a broken world. And those people don't want to hear that they're broken. We people don't want to hear what we're broken. Is it any wonder that they are not the most popular kids in the room, that they are not the most popular books in the Bible. Why would you study the prophets, especially in the summer? This is the only good time we have. Why spoil it, please? Let's study the prophets in March and February. But I tell you what, if, if you don't mind, take out the Bibles that are in front of you. Every pew here should have some Bibles, big black books. I'd I just like to show you something. It, it won't take long. The book won't hurt you. What I'd like you to do is to turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. If you can't find it real quickly, don't worry about it. Page 1019. Isaiah chapter 1. The first of the written prophets. Put a finger there. And then turn to 
to page 1431, which is the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament. 1019 to 1431. Put your finger at each end to see how much of the Bible that is. Just, just so you can see how much of the Bible that is. That's about two-thirds of the prophets in the Bible. There's another third scattered throughout. Somebody's done a study and, and said that if you were to add it all up, prophets directly account for 250 of the 1,189 chapters in the Bible. Over 20% of the Bible is the voice of the prophets. Can we really be a biblical community and not listen to what the prophets have to say? There are all different kinds of prophets, apparently. There are counselors in the king's court. There are court officials. There are gadfly prophets who are more like op-ed writers and write their opinions, or sometimes they're more like gossip columnists. Some of the prophets are working stiffs, amateurs like Amos, who is a farmer. But in many ways, the whole idea of being a prophet, hearing a voice from God, starts with one little boy. Deb tried to tell the kids his story. It says, The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord, under Eli, the judge of Israel. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There weren't many visions. And one night, Eli, whose eyes were so weak he couldn't see, was lying down as usual. The lamp of God hadn't gone out yet, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord, right near the Ark of the Covenant. You know, think Indiana Jones, the Ark of the Covenant. Then the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel answered, Here I am, and he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called, but Eli woke up and said, I didn't call you, go back to bed. So he went and lay down, and again the Lord called Samuel, and again... Eli, Samuel jumped up, went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. He probably thinks it's a joke. Son, I I, I didn't call you, go back and lie down. Uh, Now, it's important to know that Samuel didn't yet know God. The word of the Lord hadn't been revealed to him. And a third time, the voice cries out, Samuel, and Samuel gets up and goes, come on, dude. Runs over to Eli and says, here I am, you called me. And Eli realized that God was calling the boy. So he said, go, lie down. And if the voice calls, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So Samuel went down. And the Lord spoke, coming to him as at the other time, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And this is the part that we didn't tell the kids, the kind of message it was. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen. I'm about to do something in Israel that'll make everybody's ears ring. I'm going to carry out against Eli's family everything that I spoke about from beginning to end. I told him I'd judge him forever because his sons have blasphemed by God and Eli failed to stop them. So I swore that the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned. Samuel goes back, lies down until the morning, opens the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision, but Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son, what did the voice say? Don't hide. May God deal with you severely if you don't tell me everything he said. So Samuel told him everything. And Eli said, this is the Lord. 
Let him do what is good in his eyes. Then it says, The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up. And let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all of Israel, from Dan in the north to Beersheba down south, recognized that Samuel was a prophet sent from God. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh and revealed himself to Samuel through his word. That's what a prophet looks like. Because there are so many bad prophets, false prophets, people who think they're prophets and they're not, we want to spend much of this summer helping you hear the real thing. There are three tests of a biblical prophet. Three tests. They're they're pretty simple, really. The first is, this is not my opinion about this social issue. I am telling you I heard a voice from God. First test, it's a distinct word from God. It says the word of the Lord was rare. It was hard to hear, apparently. Later prophets heard these words from God in visions, but Samuel hears a voice speaking to him. Test number one. Test number two, the person who hears the voice lives in response. In other words, they not only say what's supposed to be said, but they live a different way because of it. Eli says, tell me everything he said. And Samuel sucks it up and points to the judgment of God. At great cost, I'm sure, to their relationship. Prophets, real prophets, live differently in response. The third test of someone who is a prophet in the Bible is that it comes true. One of the ways you knew that it wasn't a prophet is it doesn't come true. You pick the Yankees, the Red Sox win, you kill the prophet. Because you bet on the Yankees. The proof for a prophet was that what they said came true. And here it says, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and none of his words fell to the ground. That means what he said came true. And all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was a prophet of the Lord. Not just his voice, but his life. Why would we spend a summer with the prophets? Because there are so many voices speaking to you that you need help. And frankly, when you read the prophets, we all need help. Here is the deep end of the pool. A lot of you say, I come to church, I never learn anything new. If you don't learn something new this summer, I don't think you're listening. Because we don't often talk about the prophets. Even from here. One of the things I've become aware of as we decided to do this study is that we pastors tend to cherry pick from the prophets. We pick our favorite image, our special verse, and we don't study the whole prophecy. It's, it's like the famous one in Jeremiah 29. You, many of you know it. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and defend you. To give you a place. What a special promise. The fine print goes on and says, but it's going to take 70 years. Nobody wants to hear that part of the prophecy. Or or, uh, Isaiah. We all love Isaiah, right? Even youths grow weary. But those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They'll walk and not grow weary. They'll run and not faint. They will mount up on wings like eagles. But unless you understand why Isaiah is saying that, It just turns into a pep talk that loses its power. 
if your favorite is Amos because you are a social activist. You love Amos because he says, I hate coming to worship with you. God says, I hate coming to your worship services. But let justice roll down like a mighty river. And then I'll show up. How do you know that isn't just somebody's crazy right-wing or crazy left-wing opinion? The most popular of the ways that pastors cherry-pick out of the prophets is they use it to prove their point. Happens a lot at Christmas. We quote Isaiah, A virgin will conceive a child, and you'll call him Emmanuel. Now, I believe that is a prophecy about Jesus. But the first time that that was spoken, I think, Isaiah was sitting there talking to a fearful king and saying, Before that woman over there, you see the pregnant one? Before her baby can walk, all this will come true. If you don't know that, do you really understand the prophecy? Most of the way that the prophets are abused these days, I think, is this end of the world stuff. Now, I, I believe the creed. The creed of the church is Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. But people who are deep into prophecy often say, and it will happen on May the 8th, 2016. And I know because I have opened the book of Daniel, I have opened the book of Revelations, I have opened the book of Hezekiah, Hesitations, whatever it is. And they say, here's where it's going to happen. The day of the Lord will come and the dead will rise. They are timing the end of the world. And I think, frankly, often mistiming it. So we need help if we're going to hear a word from God. We want to hear a word from God, but we need help. We need to do it together. Reading the prophets is like reading Shakespeare. It's lovely sounds. What the heck does that mean? You need help with Shakespeare. You need help with the prophets. So let me just, in the time we have left, I'd like to help you. Here's how to understand the prophets. The word is context. Context is everything. When you're going to read the prophets, you have to understand the context of the prophets. There are, for instance, all different kinds of prophets. Samuel is one of what we would call the political prophets. They're attached to the power structure of Israel. They are often used as advisors to the king. And Nathan is with King David having much the same experience. Elijah and Elisha would be political prophets. And they're talking to the here and now mostly. The, the second group of prophets are people that we don't think of as prophets at all. But the Spirit of God comes and speaks to them. Moses, for instance, is seen as a prophet because God spoke to him and he spoke to others. You don't think of Moses as a prophet. In the same way, the Gospel of John, written by John the Apostle, is viewed as a prophet because of the book of Revelation. But you don't think of them as a prophet. They're a secondary role. The ones we're going to spend most of our time with this summer are the ones that are called the writing prophets. The writing prophets are the ones who had a vision, who spoke the vision, and then went back and wrote it down so that they wouldn't forget, the person they talked to wouldn't forget, and nobody else would forget because they wanted to make sure everybody knew. So they wrote it down. And there are five major prophets and 12 minor prophets. Now the minor prophets are just as important. They just wrote short stories instead of novels. The writing prophets. That's 
contexts. They're all different kinds. They speak all different ways. Mostly the prophets use poetry. The reason you and I don't understand the way that they write is because they are using poetry. We would not understand poetry any better than most of us understand rap. But rap is communication that goes to the heart instead of just the head. And the poets and the prophets are trying to speak to the heart. They use symbols and imagery. They use hyperbole. This is the worst ever possible. They use double meanings. When somebody says number 23 from the bulls went wild in the day, you would have said, well, Michael Jordan had a big night playing for the Chicago Bulls. Unless you were not a basketball fan. It has a double meaning. Context is everything. I want to say context is everything in in another way uh, because uh, you will not understand what the prophets are saying to you unless you understand what the prophets were saying to them. You won't understand what the prophets were saying to them unless you understood the time that they lived in. Context is everything. I can say to you, let's eat, Grandpa. And it has a very different feeling if I say, let's eat, Grandpa. (laughs) Right? Context is everything. When the prophets are talking, they are speaking to a society much like ours in that it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Dickens uh, was talking about both 8th century B.C. Israel. Thanks, guy. (laughs) 8th century Israel and, and us. Best of times, the worst of times. If you're in good shape in this economy, you're in good shape. If you're on the bottom, things are terrible. That's the way it was for the prophets. People in the know, people in the church or the temple at the time, didn't understand what all the fuss was because things had never been better. People on the bottom said, the reason it feels better to you is because you're standing on my neck. And the prophet's job was to call that out. The, the second part of the context of the prophets was that it was a very religious time. Everybody went to church all the time. But it was mostly, it was more and more religious lip service. Does that sound familiar? In America, between 1950 and 2000, this was a nation of Christendom. Everybody went to church, everybody was a member of a church, and it made very little difference whether you went to church or not. Because there wasn't much connection between what you did in church on Sunday and the way you closed the deal on Thursday afternoon. And that's what was happening in Israel. They had set the law of Moses aside and were getting what they could and then going to church and feeling good about it. The last thing I want to show you visually. The reason that Israel thrives at this time, the reason that David becomes king and then Solomon, his son, becomes emperor of little Israel, is that Israel is for like 400 years ignored by the big empires. Israel basically is a very tiny, tiny, not even from here to Duluth, tiny country. But it's a land bridge between Africa, Europe, and Asia. It's what everybody has to go through. And so the emperors, as they grew, would overtake it. Here's what it looked like in those days. 3000 B.C. will stop when we get to the time of Jesus. The Egyptians had been there forever and big. 
And then the Hittites came, and they came to the edge of where Israel is. Then the Israelite empire grew under David, and there was peace and prosperity. But then, whoa, all of a sudden the Assyrians come. And they are a huge threat to Israel until the Babylonians come, and the Babylonians are even worse. And the Babylonians are overshadowed by the Persians. And a hundred years before the time of Jesus, the Romans conquer the world. Each of those overlaps brings huge turmoil and threat to Israel. And these are the times that the prophets speak into. It's like after World War II when all of the European empires collapse. That instability is when the prophets are saying, here's what's going to come next. That's how you understand the world of the prophets. The third way that context is everything for the prophets is that we need to understand their messages. I think there are three primary messages in the prophets. We want to think there's one. He says this in 600 B.C., and now in 2017, it's going to come true. Not so much. I think there are three primary messages. I think the first of the writing prophets, we call them the early prophets, spoke words of warning or judgment. Israel was thriving, and they were going further and further from God. The word of judgment is, if you don't come back to God, if you don't act with justice, bad things are going to happen. Trust me, bad things. Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they say, stop, stop the madness, turn around, or it's going to be bad. And you know what? They didn't stop. They didn't listen. And so bad things came. Bad things came and Israel is split apart by civil war and then conquered from the outside. And that brought a second role for the prophets. They didn't turn around and say, I told you so, I told you so. Well, they did a little. But they, they instead made their primary message about consolation. Some of you need a word of warning. You're going the wrong way. Many of you need a word of consolation. The prophet's job when things have gone terribly wrong is to say God has not abandoned us. Don't abandon God. That happens in the middle life of the prophets. After they are conquered, then it gets even worse. Israel is not only conquered, they are torn apart and destroyed. Jerusalem is wiped out, and they take the leaders and they take them off to foreign empires. And in that time, the role of the prophets, the emphasis of the prophets changes again. It's not just judgment, it's not just constellation, it's a word of hope, a word of restoration. The prophets are big, saying there is nothing that you have lost that God cannot bring back. There is a future where God will make all things new. Hang on. Don't lose hope. Hope is not the same as the sun will come out tomorrow. It's not that kind of pie in the sky. It is the hope that God was in charge at the beginning. God is in charge now. Hope in the goodness of God. In each of these settings, back then and right now, God is looking to give you a word, and God is looking for your response. We're going to spend lots of time this summer talking about that message, but I want to close with what the Bible is not in prophecy. Because I think there are many false prophets 
back then in the Bible and here and now. A prophet is not a social critic. A prophet is not a person who sees your flaws and is sure how they should fix them. A prophet is not a person with a surefire plan for your life and that you should support their ministry. That's not a prophet. The Bible says, test the spirits. And in a world of health and wealth and self-absorption and patriotic fervor, we need to learn to hear the voice of God in our day. I, I need to say one more thing. Preaching from the prophets is risky business. There's a sociologist named James Hunter. He's written a great critique of Christianity and culture, and it's called To Change the World. And Hunter argues that in our society, the public square has become so politicized that people assume that everything, everything in art or religion or literature, everything can be placed on a political spectrum from left to right and judged. And that means that when we preach the prophets, unless we make it a dialogue, unless we speak with care, when people talk about the prophets, you're going to assume, assume that words like justice or poverty or sexuality or life or righteousness are really code words for some partisan political position that one of us has. Over and over, as we study the prophets, I need to explain that the values embedded in the prophets don't necessarily have a straight-line translation into modern-day legislation. For instance, I think all followers of Jesus are obligated to be on the side of the poor, to help the poor. I do not think that that means that you have to vote for a minimum wage raise. I think there are great economists on both sides of that argument. And the key is not whether you vote yes or no. The key is what will help the poor the most. It is not my job, it is not the pastor's job to tell you things that are outside of my sphere of expertise. But we must talk about the prophet's passion for the justice of God. Now, sometimes, sometimes the prophets got killed because they were saying things people didn't want to hear. Sometimes we honor the prophets and we ignore them. And many times, many times, like with Jonah, prophets are honored and they change society. Samuel later says, looking back, the word of the Lord was rare. I wonder if that's because God stopped talking or because comfortable people stopped listening or their ears were being tickled with just what they wanted to hear. God had to change the volume. Let me, let me leave you with this. I really hope you'll come back this summer. <laughs> I believe that the voice of the prophets is central to the voice of Jesus Christ. We stay with the prophets because justice matters to Jesus. Justice matters to Jesus because the kingdom of Jesus is a place where justice prevails. I cannot love Jesus without loving God's justice. The prophets remind people that in Jesus, justice prevails. It is on a cross that we see most clearly God's hatred of injustice. It is at an empty tomb that we see most loudly the proclamation that justice of God will win. And you and I get to decide whether we'll listen or not to those uncomfortable voices and what we'll do with that voice. Let's pray.
Lord God, all of us sometimes listen to the prophets and we need warning. That's uncomfortable for us. It makes us feel guilty, angry. But some of us today need consolation. The reminder that even bad times, you will never leave us. And some of us, even today, some of us need to hear the prophet speak a word of restoration. Restoration that gives hope. Hope that will come back from the dead like you did. Hope that will never die. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, let us hear your voice. Amen.